but I'm just humbled to come up and just provide the Word of God, the bread of God for you. And, you know, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not coming up here posing that I'm perfect or have things figured out. I have failings just like you do. We all do. God's not called us to be perfect. He's just called us to be humble and to accept the gift that He's brought, the perfection He's brought for us. He's the one who took care of the perfection. We're the ones who just say yes to Him. So, again, that's, that's what I have to offer. Is I don't have things figured out. But um, today's message, what we're going to be studying is finding God. So it's finding God. And I want to start with a story. It makes me think of this. Uh, back my oldest daughter was uh, about two or three years old. We got her her first pet. And it was uh, that guy. And um, a betta fish. And so we got her a betta fish and, you know, teaching her, good parents want to teach her responsibility and taking care of something else that's dependent upon you and that type of thing. Um, but then, you know, things are going well. And then, you know, what happens with every betta fish at some point. It starts swimming a little crookedly, you know, kind of like this and not looking good. And we knew the inevitable was going to happen. So we're thinking, how do we prepare for this? And... Uh, and sure enough, we come down one morning, and there's Bob, Bob the Beta, that was his name, down at the bottom of the tank, mouth wide open, eyes open, lifeless. And so I was like, Kristen, Bob died. We got to bring Lydia down. So we brought her downstairs, and we're standing there and saying, Lydia, Bob's with Jesus. Bob's died. And Lydia is a little confused, but she wants to, she's seen it for herself. And we're preparing for all the tears and the anguish and how to help her process death, you know, all of these things that we knew we had to do. She crawls up on the bar stool and she's looking inside of that tank and she's like, where's Jesus? <laughs> so, all right, this is what the story that comes to mind. And my prayer, my hope for you is that before you're lifeless on the bottom of the tank with your mouth wide open and your eyes wide open, that you'll know where Jesus is at, right? Amen? Oh, I love that. So we're, uh, we're talking about finding God, and this is fitting with our theme this year at NBC. It's rekindling the fire. And we're talking about rekindling the fire. It's just igniting passion. But some of that requires, and, and what it does require is pursuit and trying to find God. So, so that's what we're going to be focusing on. And, and you know, it's, e it's easy for us to often want to just to come to God to—oh, there's handouts, by the way. Sorry, guys. <clears throat> so they'll pass those out if you want to keep notes. I didn't say anything yet that you need to fill in, but that'll come up soon. Um, <clears throat> is, to find, is finding God, you know, it's— it's easy for us to always want to come to God with our requests and our needs. And I think of my, my daughters. I love my daughters, I have two of them. And, um, but occasionally they kind of get into this rhythm. Sorry, Lydia, you're here, so I'm going to be talking about you a little bit. Um, <clears throat> they get into this rhythm where they're asking one thing and asking another, Dad, can we do this? Dad, can we do that? Can we get one of these? Can we do this? And it just keeps on going. And I don't even have room to answer them. And the questions, has any parent ever felt this way? ever suffered this or is this just our house? So the questions are just like, bam, 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 bam. And finally, I'm just like, stop it. <laughs> you know? And I'll go and run to those girls and I'll grab them and I'll hug them and I'll snuggle with them. If you had boys, maybe you wrestle with them. But I'll snuggle with them and then I'll 
just give them attention. And soon they're not just talking about what they want. They start talking, asking questions like, Daddy, what's your favorite Hatchimal? You know what a Hatchimal is? It's one of these little toys. And so these things that mean nothing, but they mean everything to her, and they're important to me, and just there's a relationship there. And we often can come to God just always with our needs, always being in perpetual need, or thinking that we are, and always with those requests. But God wants more than that. He wants us to be having that loving relationship. We've been singing about it and talking about it all morning. But here, if God is so good, then why aren't we looking for Him? Why, why don't we search for Him? So we're going to go to Romans. Romans gives us a clue on that, or, or it's a place to start. Romans 1, verse 19 through 20, I'm just going to read it here. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, is actually speaking to the, about the wicked or the non-believers, but we're going to learn something here about ourselves. They may be known about what God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What's that telling us? God is evident enough for all of us to pursue Him. Pursue Him or reject Him or deny that He exists altogether. In fact, if you ask, um, if you ask agnostics or atheists and you say, all right, you, don't, you say you don't believe in God because it doesn't fit sound rationale. There's no, there's no good reasoning for it. If I could give you indisputable, irrevocable proof that God exists, would you believe them? This is a question to, that I would say, you could say to an agnostic or an atheist. So if I gave you that kind of proof that you couldn't, you, you'd have to believe in him. Would you believe in him? Often their answer will be no. No. And it tells you really what the human heart is wanting. It's not wanting proof for God. It's, it's, it's wanting independence. They want independence from God. So even if there was proof for God that they would say uh, no, because there's competing loves. They love their independence. They love not being accountable to Him. They love being in charge of themselves. And if there's any God, it's themselves, right? And it's, we've all done this in our own lives. So, they have, essentially, they have said yes to the temptation that Eve did. Remember that? So, Eve's, the temptation she gave into was Satan telling her, ah, God's all good and all that, but He's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to partake of this tree. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know between good and evil. Remember that discussion, that discourse? And so she gave in to the fact that God's not trustworthy and he's not worth obeying, right? And so that's, they gave in to the same lie. Basically, for the atheist or agnostic, and again, it's not just exclusive to them. We do it ourselves, says, thanks God, but I can drive, all right? You can sit in the passenger seat. I can drive. I know how to handle this. So, all right, what about those of us who do believe? Why are we not seeking God or finding God? So, even among us, I believe that for us, it's often we believe He exists, but we may not be seeking Him because we have a dysfunctional view of God or a dysfunctional picture of God. And I think of my early beginnings, um, 
I was raised a Catholic boy, good Catholic boy, and if any of you know are Catholic or have any history with that, you kind of know there's, there's a lot of works orientation, at least that's what my experience was. And so I had this, I started thinking of God as, you know, he's kind of way up there, so far away, uh, and that he was kind of annoyed by me. He was really good at watching my behavior and seeing when I did things wrong, but when I did things right, they weren't so evident to him. I mean, he was looking to see if I would screw things up. And he, like, and if I came to him with anything, it was like this, like he was irritated type of thing. And it actually, I found this picture kind of reminded me of what it would look like. Not real clear, but you can see there, there he is, up there, by the planet, so far away. He's got, look at him, he's ticked, angry. And he's got the most fantastic lats and forearms, and look at that. And his beard, what a fantastic beard, but this God does, he does like CrossFit just to beat you down, right? I mean, when I see, look at that, and how I thought of God as a kid, I was just like, he'd be like, damn you, David, you disappoint me. That's what I would feel about God, that he would... And this is how a lot of times I still think about him. This is, just, this is a place for me, a struggle for me, where I think that God is really not interested, or he's torqued. So, so he's, just, he's just busy. So if we're looking for God, finding God, who'd want to find God like that? We have no interest in pursuing that. But I mean, we might say, yes, I'm going to follow him because I have to obey him because he's fearsome. And he is. But Jesus paints a whole different picture of him, right? The prodigal story, the prodigal son story. If you don't know it, just briefly, the son who was raised with his father, and he's just like, Father, I've had enough of this. I want to be on my own. I'm out of here. Give me everything that's owed to me, and I'm going to take the inheritance that's owed to me, and I'm going to get out of here. Basically saying to his father, I want you dead. <laughs> and so he takes, the father says, okay. I'm not going to hold you. He gives his inheritance. He goes out and he spends it just on kind of whatever, his pleasures, essentially, and his, uh, his unscrupulous friends. And so all of the resources are gone, and he realizes, what in the world have I done? This was completely stupid. The servants at my dad's house lived even better than this. He was living among the pigs. And so he goes back. And I always imagine this kind of story based on, you know, my perception of God. If that son would come back, I imagine the, the father being like, what do you want? You think you could just come back here? Well, you think my door's open, that you could just take all that money and spend it and come back? Who do you think I am? And that's not the story as you know it. It says the father was looking looking for when his son would come back. And when he did, he started running. And this was, just so you know, back in this culture, this is incredibly undignified for a patriarch to have to pull up his clothes and start running. He humiliated himself to embrace his son, who basically his son disowned him. And he, you know, he puts the ring on. He said, basically says, you're back in. You're part of the family. Puts on a robe. Let's do a party. Celebrates. This is the type of God that we have. And actually, this picture is what I could only find on the internet that kind of reminded me of this. A strong, embracing father who's 
accepting his son, despite his failings, despite his weaknesses, what he's done wrong. What is your image of God? Jesus says in John 6, 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who draws, or who, who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. So I challenge you about your picture of God, but know that the Father is looking and that the Father is actually pursuing you. We only seek God, this is one of your points here, we only seek God because He has first sought us. We seek Him because He's first sought us. This, this is... This is what theologians will call prevenient grace. Basically, God started it. He, start, he acted first. He was gracious and kind to us first. And scriptures tell us that because of his kindness, it leads us to repentance. It's not because we have this desire necessarily just to be with him. The desire to be with God actually is a gift from him. So why don't we seek him? I would say it's either we don't believe him at all, Again, that would be like agnostic atheist. Or we don't believe he is generous towards us. We don't believe that he's good. Hebrews 11.6 points this out. It says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. See, God's pursuing us. He's pursuing us through history. He's pursued us through his promises that he's kept and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's pursued us, and he's wanting to make us like his son, back to being uh, the fully restored humans once again, back to the garden. And so God is pursuing, has pursued, and he's pursuing. Yet, as you know, in any relationship, there has to be an exchange, right? So. I mean, if a wife just gives to her husband in all so many ways, you know, just keeps on giving and giving and giving, and that husband responds with indifference or doesn't even acknowledge that she's doing any of this, do you call that a relationship? Yeah, they may be like committed, yeah, I'm staying here, but that's not a relationship, right? So in any normal relationship we have with God, if he's pursuing us, he anticipates, hopes, and expects that we will pursue him. God says, I have pursued you and pursuing you, and you must pursue me. Jeremiah 29, 13, he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And Jesus kind of spoke the same thing. What I'm getting at is basically uh, there is a pursuit that, is, that we have to make. You can't be casual about having a relationship with God. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, um, uh, said, seek first the kingdom of God, right? And then he tells these parables. He says, the kingdom of God is like a lost coin. This woman loses her coin in the house, and what does she do? She does absolutely nothing until she finds that coin because it's so meaningful to her. She gets her broom, she sweeps everything, she cleans it out. Everything else is later. Right now, it's find that coin, and when she finds it, celebrates. Or uh, the story of the hidden treasure, man who finds his treasure out in the field, right? Remember this? Jesus, is, again, he's given us an understanding of how the kingdom of God is set up. So this guy finds his treasure, and he, like, takes everything that he has to sells it off so he could buy that property and rightly possess that treasure because it's so meaningful. So this is, this is 
what I'm getting at is that even though God's pursuing us, it's not calling us to be casual. We must be pursuing Him. So we're going to take a look at Psalm 42. Psalm 42, maybe many of you are familiar with it. The psalmist is looking for God. And we'll learn a few things. And first thing you'll know is that this, uh, this is a psalm not written by David, but actually the sons of Korah. And the sons of Korah were basically professional worshipers, if you would, uh, worship leaders at the time. They worshiped at the temple. And so um, they were professional songwriters. And this song has meter to it, just like our songs do. You know, we have chorus, verse, chorus, verse. How's it go? Chorus, bridge, chorus, whatever it goes. So it has a similar meaning, so you'll see some repetition in it, but that's why it's actually a song. So I'm just going to read through it quick, but I want you to listen closely. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to, my, say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony, and my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where's your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. <laughs> all right, so the immediate in, uh, imagery here is this deer this deer is being pursued by hunters, running, running, trying to get away, and he runs to the place, the familiar place, where he's always come to get water. And he gets there, and it's dry. There's nothing there. My soul thirsts for the living God. It basically, the psalmist is saying, I'm not wanting God in theory. I don't want to know God just intellectually. I know that. But God, you're not here. I need you now. You're not here. He's, he's not, he's lost that, he's want that living and that experiential part of, of God. And he goes on and says, <clears throat> my tears have been my food day and night. This guy's not eating. He's not sleeping. I mean, this is clinically depressed. This guy's in a state of depression. He says, basically, he says, I believe in God, but he's lost that reality of God, the experience, the song of God. Has that happened to you before? Immediately, if, if I, what happens if, if you go to many Christians and you say, I've lost the reality of God or I'm dry, immediately they start saying, well, that's not right. We got to do something about this. 
Okay, we got to figure this out. You know, as Americans, if something goes wrong, we got to find out who we can blame. So we could sue them, right? So if something's wrong, something, if you're not having this experience with God, something's wrong with you. Let's figure this out. Did you confess your sins? Have you been reading the Bible? Have you been memorizing the Scripture? Did you cast out the enemy? Did you uh, bind the evil spirit? Did you plead the blood of Jesus? I mean, did you tithe? Did you, did you forgive your brother? All these things could kind of fix it. But note, if you read through Psalms, you'll find that. You'll find where uh, the psalmist was really distant from God. God's not near. God's not there. And that there's a sense of guilt. He's done something wrong. But in this psalm, I read the whole song. He, psalm 42, God's distant, but he's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong, yet it's still dry. So that's our, the first point, is that spiritually dry times will happen. <coughs> you may be doing everything right, yet the dry times will come. The reality of God, the closeness of relationship isn't quite there. Now, if you're new to Christ, you've got to be prepared for this, because otherwise you'll start thinking and start doubting and say, oh, this was just all a pipe dream. This is just all my imagination. No, it is normal. It is normal, and this is what happened to this, to this writer. The second thing we learned is that the events of life can disillusion us. The events of life can disillusion us. When our expectations of life aren't met or we had, or hard times had come, uh, maybe you you gave you, this is what happens, you give your life to Christ and the next two years of your life are the hardest part of your life, right? And so you start questioning it at all. And all of a sudden, like, like in here, verse 3, the accusers say, where's your God? You say he's so good and so you want to follow him and serve him. How is this working out for you? And it even in, later in the psalm, verse 9, he starts internalizing it. He says, God, why have you forgotten me? It, it, and so life itself can disillusion us. Again, a lot of times it's disappointments that we have, expectations that we have on people or on God or our careers or our family. Our, my kids were supposed to be perfect. Why are they behaving this way? Those things that uh, disillusion us. The third thing we see in the psalm here is that there's loss of community. Remember he said, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty ones. Actually, other verses, will, uh, uh, translations will say how I led the festive throng. So this was a worship leader, so he was highly engaged in uh, the worship at the temple. So he's down in the southern part of Israel where the temple was, and he was very much involved with uh, worshiping together with the people, the regular feasting, the praises, all the joys that came with that, being a part of that. And now, you notice it said Mount Mazar. He's up north. He's way up north in the country. He's away from where all the worship is. And we don't know why he's there. It's quite possible he's in exile, but he is not in the community. And so, you know, there's, there's individual prayer and there's uh, individual Bible study, individual praise, worship, but there's also corporate and communal prayer, communal Bible study, communal celebrating, like we did this morning. The two are not the same, all right? They are different. You need them both. In fact, our culture is very individualistic about this. 
If you ask, no, numerous surveys have been done, and numerous surveys, they'll all say 80, 90 percent, 80 to 90 percent of all Americans believe that they can be spiritual and grow spiritually on their own without, uh, without going to, and this is all the major religions of Islam, Judaism, Christianity. They'll say, I can be spiritual without going to a mosque, a synagogue, or a church. But if you know anything of the teachings of those major religions, it's completely antithetical to say that you can grow spiritually without the community. You just can't do it. And so it just doesn't make sense. I mean, how do you know you're right? How do you know you're staying hot? You can only know these things in the community. And that's what happened here in Psalm 42. He had left the community, again, for whatever reason, part of it was he was he's drying out. So what's the treatment? What do we learn that helps with uh, this situation? Uh, what do we learn from Psalm 42? So number one, you'll notice he pours out his soul. He just stops and he just listens to his soul. He complains. You can complain to God. I mean, and I encourage you to do this. Be open in your prayers. I think some of the best times are in the car. You know, people think you're yelling at other people driving. Well, you could just be yelling at God or praying. Just <laughs> Or journal writing. I think a lot of people, I like doing that, uh, journal writing and just saying, expressing myself and getting it out and letting your soul uh, comment. And, and you'll see this in Psalm 42, verse 4. It says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. So he's listening to his own soul. Number two, the next thing we see is he assesses his hopes. Remember it says, why so downcast all my soul? Remember that? Basically he's saying, how did I get here? You know, what, what, what got me into this situation? What was I putting my hope in? Was I hoping for something else? Did I expect something else? Was I hanging my significance on something else. And he says that again, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? This isn't a rhetorical question. He's basically seeking for information. He is assessing his soul and, and finding out what really, where did I go wrong? And what we learn from this is that dry times can be a gift because they reveal inordinate loves. It's in those times where you may have loved and put too much hope in something that wasn't designed to meet up to your expectation. It wasn't designed to provide that satisfaction that you need and we all need. It might have been you put a high expectation on your spouse, the perfect spouse. This is the one for me. Everything's going to be great. Or that career that you chose and you had such aspirations in growing in that career. Or your status among your friends or your neighbors, status in the community. Whatever, dry times can reveal where your loves have gotten extreme in the wrong place. Next thing we learn, we, we see from the psalmist, is that he remembers God's love. So verse 8, it says, By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So what he's done is he's listened to his soul. <clears throat> he's listened to his soul. He starts assessing what he's really been putting hope into. And then he backs off of that. He's gotten his information, and now he remembers the truth. And we sung about it a lot today, about God's love for us. And he starts centering on 
how the truth is going to realign him and that God is loving him. <clears throat> That's why we say this message. You know, we talk about God loving us as a father so many times because it's such a central part of the truth that we hold on to, the hope that we have. So he remembers God's love. And then with that truth that he now needs, then he's, the, the fourth thing he does is that he preaches to his own heart. Okay, remember, he listened to his soul. He let his soul talk. And then he starts preaching at it. You know, uh, in, in my work, um, I have the, the fortunate role of getting to take complaints at times from clients and even from staff members. <laughs> and uh, uh, one day, just last week, I spent like 45 minutes with this woman on the phone. And what I do, what I often do, and everyone in the office says, oh, somebody's got a complaint. Let's give it to David because he handles it. Don't give me complaints. I don't want to. But anyhow, um, what I do is I, I just listen to them. I just listen. I let it pour out, and, and you got to listen to them. And occasionally I'll say, okay, wait a minute. I want to make sure I got this right. You said this. You said this. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that's it. And I just affirm that, I, that what I'm hearing is what they're wanting me to hear. And then after a while, then it's like, okay, hold up. Let me speak to this situation now. So once I've listened, I've gained the right to say something, right? So this is essentially what the psalmist has done. He's poured out his soul. He's listened to his soul. He's re kind of assessed things. And now he's realigned with the truth that God loves him. God's going to take care of him. And he's going to say, all right, soul, shut up and listen to me. Right? Pastor Glenn was talking about this last week. Quiet the riot. Remember he's talking about shutting down those voices? There's a time where it comes where you kind of, you know, you kind of get in the mully grubs or you're kind of down and low, or after a while you got to get into God's Word, here's the truth, and say, all right, listen here. This is God's truth. This is what reality is. You have to preach to your own heart at times. I do, um, I have like declarations, and I, I keep them on my phone, and sometimes I'll do them on a, during devotion, and I'll just give you, for instance, um, and I'll just say these things because they're aligned with God's truth as a reminder to kind of preach to myself. Here's one. I am growing closer to Jesus every day. Because of Christ, my family is closer, my body is stronger, my faith is deeper, and my leadership is stronger. It's all because of Christ. Or how about, how about this one? Um, I am disciplined. Christ in me is stronger than the wrong desires in me. And I can go, I mean, there's a number of them, but basically it's me going on and just saying, this is the truth, preaching to myself. You've got to preach to yourself according to God's truth. Uh, the fifth thing we see in Psalms here is that he reestablishes his hope. Notice in verse 5 and verse 11. I'm just going to page back here. Let's take a look at verse 11. He says, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. Notice the progression here. He's not in this dry place, this dry valley. God's not there and saying, I'm going to deny this and say, oh, God's here. Or I'm going to praise him right now, though you can do that. But he says, I will yet praise him. He knows that God's going to come forward. He knows there's a future that he will. He may not feel it now. He may not be in a situation where he feels like doing it now, but he knows he will be praising God. He is hopeful for the future. He resolves to it. I'm going to ask the worship team come up, and I'm going to bring up the last point here. 
Lastly, when you read Psalm 42, and I encourage you to do this. Many of you are familiar with it, but like in your own devotion or prayer, read Psalm 42 and listen and hear the one who was thirsty. Hear the one who was forgotten by God, who was truly abandoned. You feel like God wasn't listening. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same dryness that this psalmist was talking about, Jesus experienced. When he called out to God, God did not answer. All that to say, if you're spiritually dry, so was he. Do you feel left out or alone without help? So did he. Jesus has suffered the, the, the deepest dryness and the worst spiritual place you could be in, Jesus has experienced it himself. Draw near to him, the suffering Savior. Lastly, just with a few questions as we continue to worship, I want you to think about, and they're on your handout as well. So, What is your picture of God? Let's be honest, or be honest with yourself. What is your picture of God? Is he like that distant God who's ready to slam you down? looking for you to do things wrong? Or is he a God who embraces you? He's compassionate, forgiving. What would be the possible reasons you don't seek him? Is there something that you love too much? What is it that you disproportionately love or uh, inordinately love? And lastly, what really are you hoping for? Contemplate those as we go into worship. Sees the 